I talked to Fox Valley recording legend Mark Goldie on July 1st, 2020. Mark started Rock Garden Studio in Five, Appleton, four, which is a recording three. studio, world class, What's and up, he's friends? been in the music industry for decades. What's up, friends? We're back. But why not? But why not? What's up, friends? We are live from Appleton. Crazy times. It is July 1st, 2020. I'm here with Mark Goldie of Rock Garden Studio. Appleton, longtime musician, longtime part of the music scene. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let's start with your history right away. I think uh, that'll help because this is our first time meeting. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, I have a fond memory of your dad coming into my middle school oh. and, and talking about um, the, the Holocaust and mm-hmm. um, your dad was a, a big community member. I know you took that torch as well. Oh, yeah. What uh, What's your history with Appleton and with music? Well, we'll go back to the, the beginning of history with my history with music. Um, I grew up um, up north in a town called Merrill, which is um, about mm-hmm. 15 miles north of Wausau. Um, but it might as well be the middle of nowhere. Um, very isolated, very small town, very beautiful town. The Wisconsin River runs right through it, but nice. um, not a whole lot of opportunity up there. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good place to grow up and retire, basically. Right. So um, my parents, they really wanted to give me an unfair advantage in life and got me started in music way before nice. it was legal. <laughs> um, I was in piano lessons at age five and you know that sort of thing. Um, but along with that, they owned a bar up there. Okay. It was a mill rat bar kind of thing. Yeah. And the jukebox was my shrine. It was, I, there was just something about it. It was so attractive to me um, that I used to even climb on top of the jukebox so I could press my ear against the speaker. It, I, I loved it so much. And all the, all the patrons thought that was cute and right. all that sort of stuff. But that got me interested in sound and what records sound like and my curiosity for that sort of stuff. And I still have vivid memories of certain songs and what I was thinking at the time when I was listening to those songs and stuff. Do you have any examples? Um, one was Nights Are Forever Without You by Ingrid. England Dan and John Ford Coley. It's kind of a, a pop country song, but the guitar sound was really cool. They mixed a electric and an acoustic guitar, and it had this really grindy sort of thing. Okay. And I just remember that sound, and I remember loving it. Yeah. You know? So, um, and any of the records that were too rock and roll for the Mill Rats, they sent me for my record player upstairs. Sure. So I got all the screamy stuff, and you know. Okay. That. And it's the mid '70s. Music was really interesting at the time. Right. You know, Queen. Um, Pink Floyd, Aerosmith, the Beatles were still an important thing. You know, it was just, yeah. there was so much going on. It was such a great time to be absorbing music. How old music. were you during this time? I was born in 1969. Okay. So I was developing through the 70s. Okay. And it wasn't until the 80s till I kind of took charge of my life. You know? Right. So, so piano lessons at age five, hated them. <laughs> Uh, for the most part, I faked my way through them because I had already kind of had an ear. Sure. So as soon as I heard my piano teacher play the part, I could memorize it and it was over. So I was never really reading the sheet music until three years into it and I was busted because I couldn't remember something that long. Uh. Yeah. So then I discovered the electric guitar. Um, 
Started my first band when I was nine years old. Wow. Taught everybody how to play their instruments because I had no patience. I just couldn't. How, know, how old were the people you were playing with? They were all one year older than me. Okay. So I'm in fifth grade. Yeah. And I, by this point, I had already played drums, guitar, bass, um, keyboards, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Not well. I mean, like, it, it wasn't good or but anything. But you could make sounds. I can do three or four together. chords. I can kind of figure out songs, you know. So what I did is, because um, there's no bands for nine-year-olds. Right. It doesn't <laughs> exist, right? Nowadays, there kind of is, which is great. But back then, there wasn't. So what I did, I was just determined, and I looked at every one of the cool kids in the grade above me in, in like basketball practice and I felt like I had something they wanted so I'd approach this guy I saw him beating on his legs like this you know yeah and um, I'm like hey uh, I'll teach you how to play drums you'd be in my band really and then now here's this cool kid that all the chicks dug and all that think you know I'm in the club now yeah. you know and oh, this is great let's go to the next guy you know so I put this band together we were called Avalanche and um, Played our first gig that year at an assembly of the last day of school. Nice. And made it to the, they called it the fish wrapper. It was the Merrill Photo News. Made front page. <laughs> the fish wrapper. Yeah. Nice. So, um, so that, and that same year I played my first bar gig opening for another band. And wow. that was just kind of it. Then the family yeah. got involved and started buying equipment and booking gigs. My mom was, was the manager. And, um, <laughs> We just kind of built it up from there. and But right along at, at that same time, I started recording. Okay. Um, a neighbor who, um, who I adored, his name was Milo, he's an older guy, but he, um, he was a piano player. Nothing famous or anything like that. Right. But he had studied in Milwaukee and Marquette with Liberace. Really? Yeah. So he could play all the classical stuff, Chopin and Beethoven and all that. And I'd go over there and he'd play for me. And I just loved it, you know, and he couldn't understand how this, this little kid could like what he was doing. Right. So he, um, he ended up with cancer and he knew he was on his way out. And he asked my parents, um, it's like, hey, I'd, I'd really like to give Mark a gift before I leave. And they're like, yeah, Milo, anything. So one day I go over there and he has this red wagon and this big box with a handle on it. He says, well, you take this home and you have your dad help you in the house with it. So we get it up on the kitchen table and it opens up like, like this yeah. to two speakers and a reel-to-reel -reel tape deck. Wow. Yeah. And, okay, you know how, how kids, every generation is better at electronics than the one right. before it? You know, like for the most part, right? What I what took me forever to learn at twenty five, kids who are eight are, are doing now. You know, right? So I looked at this tape deck and just attacked it. No one had to teach me anything. I just kind of got it. Nice. But the the nice thing is the gift that he gave me was not that tape deck. He gave me Rock Garden Studio. He gave me a future in recording because right. that's what got me excited and. He planted a seed. Yeah, d definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. It seems very uh, meant to be. If you want to look at it that way, yeah. Right, yeah. or, right. I mean, just that these things fell in front of you is yep. in Merrill, Wisconsin. <laughs> exactly. So what was the tech like back then? What was that tape deck compared to, like, when you were of age to maybe you know, start your own studio. Well, okay, so the tape deck was kind of neat. It had two features which were, were great. It was a stereo deck, but you could do sound on sound. 
So I could record one thing on one track and then record myself over the top of that on another track. But keep keep the first one. Right. Yeah. Now we can do that endlessly. Right. But you know, back then that was kind of the limitations of analog equipment. Okay. The other thing is it had two speeds, double speed and half speed. And I figured out how they did the chipmunks voices. Ah, double and, speed. Sure. Well, basically what you do is you take a song, record it at high speed, so it plays back at high speed, slow the tape down to half speed sing to it there and then when you bring the song back up now the voices are high but the music's where it's supposed to be oh yeah and um so i was doing that all over the you know it was there was a yeah. lot of stuff i could do with this thing you know yeah. i'm recording my dog and my first bands and friends coming over and joking and you know yeah stupid stuff you know? so i'm curious now because um i've i've listened to like some old uh like classic rock people talk about hmm. the, the process and the tech back then right and, um in particular um i'm trying to remember the gentleman's name from elo the jeff, jeff lynn jeff lynn yeah. who everyone accuses me of looking like <laughs> it's perfect and yeah. you got the sunglasses. he wears the sunglasses everywhere yeah he well. looks just like me yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but he was saying that there was like this one piece of um i'm trying to remember what the function of it was like i think he could like I don't know if it was like he had control over the left and right. There was some warping capabilities mm. of the first technology that he was. There was a trick that the Beatles used to do, and you need two specific types of machines. It's called artificial double tracking. Okay. And that's where it sounds like a person saying it twice, but they mm. actually didn't. You did it electronically. Okay. And there's only like two tape decks that are and they're different brands that could actually pull that off okay yeah so interesting um i'm wondering uh it seems like a lot of this stuff like you said you attacked it yeah uh came to you intuitively um do you now and did you then were you studying these people or were you just learning by collaborating and from doing and like i was alone you know, like nobody had an interest like I did. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely obsessed, obsessed with music, obsessed with the Beatles. That was my first love was the Beatles, everything. And yeah. my friends would be like, Mark, just shut up already. We, we don't care about the Beatles. You know? <laughs> what do you say to people? Okay. So I, I also enjoy the Beatles and I enjoy how dynamic they were and just changed with the times, but they also changed however the hell they wanted to change really. Yeah. Um, what do you say to people that say they're overrated or like, uh, well, you don't have to like them. Yeah. That's that's kind of the thing. You don't have to. Right. Um, but um, I think they're they're such an important part of you know our culture now and and what mm -hmm. pop. They said they got turned down for their first record deal because they said um, guitar music was on its way out. Mm. You know, <laughs> and they kind of resurrected that whole thing. You know, um, and yeah, technically there's. Lots of jazz guitar players that are better than than right. George Harrison and and you know yes you can have better of everything but it's the phenomena that happened um, I'll give you an example yeah um, I played a Beatles wedding once so like a tribute Beatles tribute band we didn't dress like them or anything but right. but we played a whole wedding and a wedding is great because. Um, you have every age from birth to death mm -hmm. at a wedding and nothing with Beatles songs and nobody in that room was too cool for the music right I mean teenagers weren't too cool for it 20 somethings weren't it wasn't um, nerve-wracking to the old people mm -hmm. but the best part was we would do certain songs not every song just certain ones where as soon as we would start like close your eyes and I'll kiss you um, 
the little kids' eyes would get really big and they'd run for the dance floor. Really? And I, I'm just watching this going, there's no way their parents conditioned them. You know, like yeah. adults will, will go to a dance floor when they hear a familiar song. Oh, I like this one, honey. Let's, let's dance. Yeah. You know, kids don't have that. So, Has anyone in your mind achieved that, like, um, I guess, uniform cross-generational? Because it's the first time it happened. And the thing was, you know, they went from, you know, their first record, which is a little more bubblegum, to Sgt. Pepper in a matter of two years. Can you imagine that? You know, you think two years ago was nothing. Yeah. So... And it was all because they were so successful right off the bat mm-hmm. that number one, they were encouraged to be creative and do bigger things. And their egos were so big <laughs> that they thought they could change the world. Right. They were really like, we're going to innovate. We want to do new, make new sounds, new, new types of music, new sort of things. Yeah. So all of that encouragement really, I think, um, snowballed yeah. all the way through the whole thing. And I don't see many acts getting that opportunity it's the only time it happened yeah it almost seems like you need the cultural you almost need the ego and the cultural like push to like make that in it's almost insane like it almost makes no sense i was listening to um is abbey road which just Mm -hmm. hit 50 years like last year yeah right um so they did a they on spotify they had a bunch of um raw cuts or whatever and some remastered stuff um and just hearing them talk beforehand they're just like you just tell they're so calm and then yeah. they just come on and lay down a classic or whatever it's just yeah but even the words like you know christ you know it ain't easy he's like singing like he's going down the same road as jesus christ like yeah. and that was like the the balance where people are like oh my god you know it's it's an interesting time in general because yeah. recorded music was new right yeah and you could it's like the printing press for music essentially absolutely and that what was happening you know in america at the time because they were looking at america you know they 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 were bored with their own country they wanted to conquer the u.s right in fact they they were trying to be um american blues guys Mm. and failed miserably and came up with their own style Mm -hmm. you know but a lot of their early covers are chuck berry and the isley brothers and all these american acts they never covered british artists yeah so um uh but what was happening in America from 19, let's say, 64 to 1969, um, when, when they came over and played the Ed Sullivan show, that was only like three months after Kennedy was shot. Wow. So, like, everybody was feeling really weird, kind of like we're feeling now. You know, yeah. like everything's messed up. And um, so then this comes along and then the Vietnam War and we had a draft. Yeah. No, you know, and there's this fear of like, nobody knows if your number is going to be picked or not, or your brother or, you know, it, it was a terrible time. And I think we'll probably get back to this in this conversation about yeah. what's going on now. But a lot of times when there's that mass um, messed upness, I don't have a better word. Massed, yeah. everything's screwed up. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot Uncertainty, of, maybe. Uh, all yeah. that. I, I think good art comes from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I, I mean I guess why, why why wait um have you noticed anything as someone who helps people put out music um have you noticed people 
making less music, making, it seems to me like artists that I follow, and it could just be a timing thing because all mm. artists are on their, you know, uh, production schedule or whatever based yeah. on their, what's happening to them. But have you noticed less people putting out music or more people putting out music? And if you are close to musicians, have you noticed people like really wanting to put out something like meaningful during this time like what's your take on there's well, so there's far? a bunch of things happening there's the one level of the artists whose artists or musicians who never had a, a an audience mm-hmm. and that you saw immediately with streaming um of like you know this guy who just kind of plays an acoustic guitar and sings can't really get a bar gig but hey i can do facebook live now i you know i have a thing and uh, yeah. it, we're just saturated with that sort of stuff yeah it's not the great greatest quality because these people aren't experienced performers and you know right. that sort of thing and the equipment isn't the same and, and all that but th- that's the one level of thing that's happening then there was a big push to be first to market and i was part of that um, when I knew my the business would be shut down, I'm like, okay, here's my chance to record my own music, first time in 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is great. I locked the door, and I'm like, I'm going for it. So I put out um, a single. It's on my Facebook page. I saw it. Actually. Yeah. yeah. So um, my thing was like, let's get this thing out quick before everybody else does it. Yeah. And then <clears throat> the next one I saw, which was really similar to mine, was Mike Campbell, the guitar player for Tom Petty, did one almost exactly like he was in his studio doing yeah. doing the same sort of thing. But I beat him by a week. Nice. So, so in owning a studio, do you find yourself connected to these people? Like what, I guess, what is your relationship? Well, with? it's... It, it's usually um they call me when they need me (laughs) it's kind of because i get busy when i'm not working with this one you know i'm working with other people and same thing with them you know they get done with their record they're off doing whatever they do with with that you know Mm -hmm. so i see you know with with the real loyal customers or clients i see them once a year you know kind of thing so and but i follow them you know and and we we message and stuff like that so I, I don't know exactly what everybody's doing right now. I certainly hope they're writing songs. I hope they're gathering material. And I and what's happening to us gives so many artistic opportunities mm-hmm. and possibilities of new ways of thinking and new things to say and new, you know, Definitely. besides just everyone arguing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. But I haven't seen a whole lot of what's going on. You know? Yeah, I haven't seen a ton of output either. But it is an op- it's it's an opportunity too, and music is so awesome because, well, there's a lot of ways you can do it. You you could collaborate, you could do duets, you could do back and forths, you could do, but it gives you know it gives individuals uh, who are inclined to artistic expression a chance to sit down and say, what do I feel about this? Like, what do I know about this, and right. how can I? open up a dialogue with the world about it well that's that was my second single was kind of like the lyrics weren't written yet yeah i kind of knew something about it and it's 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 i almost had a premonition a couple years ago i was going to name the record 2020 oh yeah it's just nuts now i'm not because it's going to be a cliche of some sort so you're working on an album um, that was the idea then, um, okay. but now I got to get back to business and so. Okay. But I got two songs recorded. Okay. But the second one is more of a now. This is how I'm feeling right now, and here's how we should treat each other. And um, I don't know how I'm going to release it yet. So, okay. but it'll be out in the next couple weeks or so. Okay. And cool. um, and they can find that 
I'm not sure yet. Okay. I, I don't know that there's going to be a video or anything. It might just be on radio and, and online sort okay. of thing. But, um, but I took the opportunity to go, okay, how do I really feel about what's going on? Because there are so many levels of, um, we've got the fear, we've got uncertainty, we've got this polarizing politics going on. And I really, I really believe this, that, um, essentially both sides of the political realm um everyone's right Every, they, they both have a point the problem is everything in between is corruption mm-hmm. and manipulation and trying to pin this side against that side and no one can have a conversation anymore and that's the most frustrating thing yeah it does seem like uh like protecting lies or something is like maybe the only problem like just like lack of transparency or something well i think more so than ever people have made up their minds already how they feel about something before it even happens yeah and instead of looking at it objectively and because the information out there is all skewed all of it both sides all of it you can't take anything for what you see online anymore because there's always a video that edited out what happened before the incident. There's always this angle versus that angle. There's the way they word things. And you could take the same story and look at it from this source, and it has points in that direction from this source, it points in that direction. Yeah. So it's like, and I'm watching people online, and they're like, okay, I'm on this side, so that's how I'm going to feel about everything. Yeah. And that's, that's really frustrating that people, I question my starting a few years ago i i kind of sat down with myself and go you know i i can't just be idealistic i really have to question how i feel about everything while it's happening and process it and more than anything my feeling right now is i don't know (laughs) i don't have an opinion i don't have answers let's try to get as much information as i can i can't tell you how to feel i can't argue with you about something yeah i'm 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 with you actually like 100 percent because um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised by how many, well, I, to be honest, I'll t- I take that back. I would say 80% of people I interact with the general sense, even if they share how they feel, there is a air of like, I don't know to yeah. it, and, but there is like a 20% people who are just like, no, it's, it's this way or that way. And it's like, dang, I, like, I guess you got this all figured out, but there's a lot going on. there's a lot of gray area too yeah and a lot of misinformation stuff they're not telling you and like that's what i mean it's like how how can you draw conclusions out of this mess yeah i think uh i think ultimately though most people like although it feels like most people want to be divided or want to be confused i think most people don't i think most people are like i don't want to be like have riots on the street i want to i don't want to question my neighbors who when i'm going on a walk i don't like Mm -hmm. you know i think people ultimately you know don't they don't feel as divided as like the messages were being fed the percentage i don't know where that percentage lies yeah you're right because probably it's probably I like to think it's 10, 10, 80, though, where 80% of the people in the middle, but maybe it's more like... I don't know. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I guess um, that's a problem. But I do know a lot of people who draw their energy from um, the negative stuff. Mm-hmm. They, you can see them getting all riled up and ready for an attack and, and sort of thing. And everyone thinks they're right. 
you know right. um, I'll give you an example here's something that happened recently um, and I hope I don't get in trouble for this but it's my reality it's what happened my, at my father's memorial um, when it was all done you know I stood there while people lined up to say whatever they wanted to me you know kind of thing and my dad's message was um, hate is nothing love is everything and you probably remember that from him speaking mm-hmm. um, a kid once asked him um, but don't you hate Adolf Hitler and my dad said no I pity him I love all people mm-hmm. you can't fight racism with hate with more hate mm-hmm. you know it just doesn't work that way yeah so to him he doesn't care who you are you know you're a human being and that's all that matters he will argue with you you know he'll, yeah. he'll get in a heated battle with you but in fact one of his favorite things to do he had these three friends um, dad and, and one of the guys was very on the liberal side and the other two were staunch conservatives and they loved once a month to go out um, to a restaurant drink a bunch of wine or vodka or whatever they drank and just scream at each other about <laughs> politics and at the end of the night they hugged and they were best friends but yeah. they loved it you know yeah kind of thing so so I'm at the memorial and these two guys come up and uh, they said hi we're from Antifa I don't even know what that is. I really don't. So I don't have an opinion about it. Yeah. I think it's a movement. I don't really either. I think it's a movement. It's very loosely organized from what I understand. And they're using it in the media to kind of like prove a point or demonize a group or I don't, who knows. Yeah. But these guys came up and they said, we're, we're from Antifa or we are Antifa or something like that. <laughs> and they said, you know, I know your, your father forgives, but we don't. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to push every Nazi out of the Fox Valley we possibly can and whatever it takes kind of thing. I'm like, you missed his whole point. You yeah. completely missed his point. That isn't how, you, how this works. That right. makes things worse. And then they can demonize you so much easier once you start acting like that yeah. and pointing the finger at you. Now you're the bad guy, yep. but you still think you're on the right side. Yeah. You know? And you might be on the right side, but it's not the way to go about it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just a transfer of violence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hundred percent in it's war like, both sides think they're on the side of the good guys right everybody, <laughs> like, everybody nobody does. goes to war thinking they're the bad guy right you know that's tribalism to a t yeah well I, first off i it's crazy that they said that to you i think that well once again in in their minds they i thought were they the were right thing. They, yeah they thought they were helping me out you know we'll get rid of some <laughs> nazis you for better. you yeah 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 but that wasn't the case yeah that's wild but yeah it's like the i think it's uh um, Martin Luther King, uh, I mean, not that this, this is more of a, a truism, I guess, but, uh, uh, dark can't be, you know, get rid of dark. Only light can do that. Um, yeah. fire can't fight fire. Uh, I don't think that's what he said, but that's the you point. Get the point. Yeah. 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 You can't, you, I mean, you can, I guess, burn everything down to fight fire but then you're left with nothing right you know starting and that's scratch yeah Yeah. exactly maybe not you know starting in a completely different space that's for sure yeah but uh yeah i think uh very interesting time absolutely well if we talk about the musicians you know basically you know the the rug was pulled out of the entire music business from the from the littlest guy you know playing the corner pub right up to the huge rock concerts and people don't even realize all the people all the peripheral people yeah um for like i i did a, a short film that's also on my on my page um about uh it's called the lonely sound guy 
And I did that with a guy, Gary Bomber, one of the popular sound guys around here, and he owns a, a company. And basically, um, those guys work seasonally. They, they do some gigs in the wintertime, but for the most part, they make their money in the summertime with the festivals. Mm-hmm. And then they hibernate in, in the winter. So they have six months to make a year's worth of cash. Right. Well, you take the summer away, you took 12 months away from these guys. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he was sitting there going, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, my, my whole summer's gone. I'm, I'm watching them all get canceled and, and all this sort of stuff. And um, we, we did this short film. It's funny. And, um, and it went viral. We got 50,000 views around the world from nice. anywhere from Russia to Thailand. To, and every page I click on is a sound guy. You see sure. it right, right. The strip on their Facebook page has a concert stage in the mixer right here. You know? Right. And... Um, so those are the guys you don't think of. You right. think, oh, geez, that band is going to suffer because they can't tour. Well, what about their sound guy? What about the guitar techs and the this and the that? Yeah. This entire industry got shut down. Um, and all the you know all the free live shows in the world. It's nice and it's you know it's offering hope, but it's ultimately not putting a dent in right. you know what's what's happening to them well and i see people grasping at straws and trying to keep something going for this year and i mean one thing now is it's going to be um drive-in theater style shows Mm -hmm. where you honk your horn instead of clap (laughs) and then you sit in your car and watch a band i'm like no (laughs) i'd go out of curiosity maybe but yeah um that's or support hopefully yeah yeah, you know something like that but um (laughs) You know, and I know Summerfest, they were trying to keep it together and they pushed it back. And I'm like, and I'm looking at that going, there's no, no one's going to be touring. Yeah. And if you're not touring, you can't take a big production out for one show. Right. It, it's not cost effective. So who, who are they going to get to play? And they finally gave up. Sure. And I kind of, I kind of look at it and, you know, like let's, let's forget about 2020 and get healthy. Yeah. And then, um, let's move, let's push forward with 2021. And my big hope is that the world looks different next year yeah. and different in a better way, more artistic way. Um, people have a better appreciation for things, which I think we're learning right now because nothing is for sure. Nothing yeah. is for sure. And that was made drastically apparent. Yeah. Um, in a very, uh, yeah, in a way that people said, please no, yeah. <laughs> and it still came. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I agree completely. I, I think, look forward to 2021. Let's hold it together until then. That's like the, like... Well, the one thing we have now is time, you know? So we've, we've got some time away from whatever we were going to do. I hope writers are writing. I hope guitar players are practicing. I hope, mm-hmm. you know, I hope this helps us grow and people are using this for self-growth. Yeah, 100%. Writers are writing, you know, whatever you do, you should be doing it better next year. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. People need to still continue to focus on, like you said, get healthy, focus on yourself. And survive financially. You know, all that stuff. Yeah. Right. You got to take care of the hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually was saying, and, and I didn't think it would happen like this, obviously, but obviously the economy goes like this and like... Um, I, I guess I don't know fully how the economy works, so I don't want to like talk about my ass or anything, but eventually there was going to be some sort of crash. Like every 20 years, something happens. Yeah. It didn't yeah. seem like we rectified the 2008 stuff really right. anyways. Um, 
So I was thinking though, like on the bright side, I think we're going to have some of the coolest music during the next, cause like everything's been so, um, I'm a fan of a lot of music, mostly in terms of new stuff. Um, mostly folk and hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of, they're both storytelling, but they're also completely like different stylistically, honestly. Yeah. But, um, everything seems so, especially in the hip hop world, so flashy. And so, um, not as deep or introspective or maybe meaningful or, uh, exciting in that way as like some of the, the Pink Floyd, the, the Led Zeppelin, the stuff you're mentioning, yeah. um, from the, you know, mid sixties to the seventies. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought like, Oh, next recession or depression or whatever it is, is going to be like, ho- hopefully great for art at least. Well, it, the, the, the two things that we have going for us, or the one thing we have going for us in this year and in the late sixties is an existential crisis. So in we, <laughs> we, we have going for us. But well, you're right. artistically, right? Artistically, right. you know, things get really good when things are really bad, right? And um, makes you appreciate the yeah. It, it, everything life. gets deeper. Everything gets deeper. Right. Um, it's just popped in my head. There was a thing that happened four or five years ago um, in Hawaii where somebody sounded an alarm they weren't supposed to, and or pressed a button or whatever. And the entire, um, of Hawaii was told that they were going to die, that missiles were on their way, bombs were coming and they have like 20 minutes to live. And if you can imagine, and it's on emergency sirens everywhere. And it's on every broadcast, every radio, every, you're getting texts all over and you're running around trying to think of loved ones and how do I get home and you know, all this stuff. Imagine how heavy life feels at that moment. You know, mm-hmm. um, because lo- for some, maybe light yeah. instantly, like heavy for that moment. And then you're like, I, I'm going to die. You yeah. know, like, or however you would react. Right. You know? Um, yeah, I guess. So I, I, this isn't as heavy as that, you know, but I hope it, it gets people to reflect of how, how great life is and how short it is and how it could be over tomorrow you know absolutely i'm getting to the age now where the musicians around me are dropping like flies mm-hmm. um three or four last week um, i have a friend who's really sick right now he's got a couple days left wow um and yeah and it's just like okay you know appreciate the people you're you're around yeah. i went to um i looked up an old video that i did with some buddies from 10 years ago right I'm like ah this guy Shortly after that, succumbed to MS, Dang. and he's messed up. That guy was in a car crash. That guy here, I'm like, everyone's falling apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything's falling apart, you know? Yeah. So it's it's like, yeah, we, we need to really appreciate what we've got while we have it. Yeah, definitely. Gratitude is, yeah. is huge. Um, to kind of steer things a little bit. Yeah, we got heavy there, huh? Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, it's it's important to, to talk about and... Um, a lot of people don't, I feel like, talk about it, you know? Right. Um, how did Rock Garden start? How did you come to Appleton? Okay, so um, started young, started playing at bars when I was nine. By the time I was 16, I convinced my parents that school wasn't for me, and I, my education was on the road. So um, at 16, got a booking agent, took my band out for, for a couple years. And 
that's I really learned. I was a serious kid, very serious. The guys in my band weren't, but you know. So, um, about two years, sixteen, seventeen, when I was approaching eighteen. I'm like, I'd, everything is in Appleton. Appleton just seemed like the Emerald City to me. I don't know why. I came down, my sister lived down in Nina. Okay. And I came to visit a couple times, and I realized how isolated my hometown was. And this place was just hopping. Um, at the time, uh, they took me out on a Thursday night to watch bands. We went to five or six different bars. Everyone was shoulder-to-shoulder people. And all the bands were good. Um, WAPL at the time. Um, the first thing I heard when I, when I came down to visit Appleton, turned on the radio, and it was Eruption, the guitar solo um, by Eddie Van Halen. Yep. That's devil music back then. Yeah. You couldn't hear that on the radio. All we had was a station that, that was um, equal to one of those pop stations now, mm-hmm. right? Like devil music, like heavy metal music on the radio. This place is amazing, you know, so it was always like my mini Los Angeles and it was just kind of for a couple years was a dream that I I really want to be there. That's where I want to start my career. So and it was just as a musician, not as a recording guy or anything like that. Yeah. Um, And I told my parents I didn't I didn't ask. I remember I'm just like, okay, on my 18th birthday. I'm out. So, yeah. And literally on my 18th birthday, loaded up my my Volkswagen van, a 1965 Volkswagen van with all my equipment, and I was on my way down. And did you make money? Did you have another job, or do you exclusively make money from doing gigs? No, I uh, moved in with my sister, so I had okay. time to try to find something. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't supporting myself yet or anything. My mom was kind of sending some money down and, and stuff like that. So I had had time to develop things, nice. you know. So and I played in a bunch of bands around. I had a sound company for a while and mm-hmm. always had kind of a basement studio happening and doing stuff yeah and um like the rick rubin of appleton yeah <laughs> kind of that um but it was more recording myself sure. than, than anything and then right. um the idea kind of came later that and here's what's good and bad about my decision back then my thought is i want to be in a really awesome studio and they don't exist around here mm-hmm. they just didn't exist back then and um as i was going you know i worked for a small studio nina for a while and i did this and that my thought was okay i will start a studio which will be my private studio for me to record my music but it'll pay for itself by recording other people. Mm-hmm. Little did I realize that what I was signing up for is to be a small business owner. And that sucks. <laughs> it's the worst part of this job. Yeah. You know, everyone thinks that, you know, you wake up in the morning, you're just rock and roll. And no, there's so many, there's so much stress and headaches to deal with. And I can't stand that side. Yeah. But you've been doing it for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But that's, that was the thing when, when the shutdown happened, I'm like, Finally, here's my chance to to play because, you know, it's I I like recording. I like recording people. I like getting great drum sounds. I like that sort of stuff. But ultimately, I learned the art of recording to do my music. Right. You know, and to finally have a chance to do that was just like I was in heaven. I was really like I wake up in the morning. I'm like, okay, am I dreaming? No. Okay, let's start the day. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um. This is a, a question that I had earlier, and it, it fits here. Is uh, h- how many relationships do you have to have to make a recording studio work? Like, how many like musicians are you 
doing recurring work with on a you know once in a while basis. Well, that's that's the thing with now being back open again, um, is that you lose momentum and it isn't like you open the doors and everything's hunky-dory again some stuff is booked six months in advance four months two months two weeks you got person who comes around every so many you know and it's to fill your calendar it takes all of that Mm -hmm. and it takes a couple big gigs where people have some some cash want to do a nice production and they come in and book a lot of hours other people who come in and do a couple karaoke songs or what you know it's yeah. runs the gamut you know right and and yeah you stop that and then you're starting over from scratch you mm-hmm. know so yeah it takes a it, it, like i say i've been doing this on my own doing the rock rock garden i started in 2002 so 18 years mm-hmm. and um i really didn't gain momentum um till about seven years ago when i moved to the current location okay yeah. Is that in the Edison building? Yes. Okay. That's but that place, you know, it's just so awesome. How could you not want to be there? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just too cool. Yeah. It's Now you got Tandem and Akoka in there. It's, I haven't been in there yet, but it seems like the goofiest place ever. Yeah. It's, uh, it's quirky. Maybe not as quirky as like Ambassador. Uh, I don't know if you go out to the bars or anything. Not much in Appleton, sure. no. But. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but they're always putting out weird stuff in front of the place, little props yeah. and like it's, Art it's crazy. And then you have the garage doors wide open and like yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, you'll have to stop in there sometime. One of these days. Yeah, I'm always on my way home and I'd like right. Yeah. So, um, is Rock Garden just you, or is there a team? How does that work? Yeah, it's me. Um, I've had partners through the years and didn't always work out mm-hmm. well. Um, I do have um, an apprentice or protege uh, called Woody Larson, and he will probably be running Rock Garden someday. He's, he's like one of the most intelligent um, and enthusiastic young musicians I've, I've ever known. Yes. And yeah, I think he, he has a lot to offer. He needs experience. You mm-hmm. know, it's the only thing he's really lacking right now. But, um, but yeah, that, and he's around and he helps me a lot, a lot just to be around. By doing, by having help from Woody, does that, does that free up time for either you and or him to like do more of your own stuff? Or? Not necessarily. No. no, no, but it's a full time. Yeah. But it is nice to just have someone there to bounce ideas off of and, and someone to talk to. Cause a lot of times say I do a, a TV commercial. Um, I, I walk in myself. I'm the sound guy. I'm the director. I'm the lighting guy. I'm, you know, the camera operator. I'm, you know, the, you write the thing, you have the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just used to being the jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there was a, a recent thing down at the studio where a big time production came in for a national company and they just rented the studio. Okay. And, but, um, okay, we got the big time production. And then after they're done the next day, I'm, we're going to keep the, the setting there, the set there. And then I'm going to bring in my rinky dink equipment and shoot the same thing, you know, but different subject. And, different, um, like for a different client. Nope. Same client. Oh. Just, um, for a different purpose. Okay. okay. So that was national stuff. This is going to be local stuff. And, um, the, for their shoot, it took three days. First day was drop off of all this equipment. Um, second day was setup, and the third day was production. There were 25 people in the studio, um, directors, um, camera operators, DPs, lighting people, grips, um, catering, um, 
representatives from the client, representatives from the ad agency, this, that, the equipment. I had never seen like the big boy movie equipment in real life, only in magazines. And they had three of the big cinema, like big movie cameras there. They were like $50,000 each. The lenses were $50,000. There was a quarter of a million dollars of equipment there. Do you know if they were like red or? They were the reds. Red. Yeah. Okay. But the lenses were these things. Sure. (laughs) You know? And, um, but I, I, what I did is I, um, I didn't have anything to do, so I pretty much sized up the whole room. I'd, I'd look at the the, um, the model number on the lighting, and then go look it up online. Oh, it's a seven thousand dollar light, jeez, wow. you know, sort of. Thing. And trucks outside, and yeah. and helpers on top of helpers, and this and that, and and okay, they do their thing. Um, everyone gets paid, you know, kind of thing, and then clear all the gear out. Next day, I set up my little my little DSLRs and my lighting yeah. rig and all that stuff. And I'm looking at the footage of the two ads, and pretty I think mine looks better. <laughs> and it's, it definitely sounds better. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, um, I'm just used to doing that. I'm used to doing it all myself, and yeah. it's hard for me to let go of any aspect of things. Sure. Any aspect, because I'm just used to Sure. That. So... Um, do you have any any like albums or anything that you've worked on through Rock Garden that you're exceptionally proud of? There's two or three records every year that grab me musically in a certain way. There might be other records where the production is better or the artist is better or something like that, but it always seems like there's a couple records or at least one going at all times that just gets to me mm-hmm. and um so there isn't just there's they're always happening they're always happening and most of the music i listen to when i decide what you know versus the radio or something like that um in my car i'll listen to the local artists the the records that i've recorded before i'll listen to some other stuff mm-hmm. so yes there are there's a lot of that makes sense yeah what uh from a studio perspective um because i i I don't know much about sound, but I'm interested in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't think I have an ear to the level of like, um, you were describing yourself as a kid. Um, but I definitely noticed little nuances in songs and I'm like, Oh, I like what they did with that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've actually taken like this audio interface and, uh, I think it's a condenser mic in, Mm -hmm. in the bag and, um, just mess around with a friend who's better at guitar than me and Mm -hmm. um uh and just kind of put some stuff together on the computer what's the key to like um what what's the key to to great sound like obviously you Mm want to get it right when you're recording is it like is it the equipment is it it's everything that's okay what if you think of a director in a movie um they're not doing the the brunt work they're sitting back looking at the overall picture and go, I want the best videographer in Hollywood. If I get that guy, I know my movie's gonna look great. I want the best sound company to do my sound. If I hire them, I know they'll work, they'll just focus on that and it'll sound like a million bucks. Um, and then, you know, in everything on the whole crew. Now, sometimes the sound guy's going, well, you have this machinery that's in, in my microphone. You know, there's mm. a loud generator in my microphone. We can't have that. You know, and they fight and do all that stuff. So the movie, in the end, every little detail is the same. Record production is the same thing. 
um, you when you're early in the whole thing, you kind of think, oh, if I only had this one mic, everything would be wonderful. If I only had this one piece of gear, and that I've learned thousands of times over and over again, no, um, it's the combination of all of it together. So. Um, with Rock Garden, my goal, mind you, this is 20 years of collecting and trading up and, you know, all that, mm-hmm. is um, best of the best everywhere you look. You can't get more authentic than that. You can't get more high-endy than that, you know, that, from the cables to the microphones to, to everything. So um, I got myself to a point where, okay, if my records don't sound good, it's not the equipment, it's me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about this anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, so it starts with the performance. Um, if, if someone's giving you an erratic, dynamic performance that you, that's super loud at times and super quiet at times and they're kind of bashing the strings on an acoustic guitar and they're just killing the tone, there's nothing you're going to do to save that. Mm-hmm. Nothing. It starts right there. Mm-hmm. Um, drums. It's crazy. I have a house drum set. It's real nice. DW high end with a Ludwig Black Beauty snare, one of the most famous snare drums ever. Um, it gets played by 90% of the drummers who come in. You know, 10% want to do their own kit for whatever reasons. Um, the drum set sounds completely different depending on who's sitting there. And you're thinking you're just hitting it with a stick. You know, yeah. like what? How could you make, you know? And it's not just how loud you hit, not how hard. Yeah. There's something about the nuance and the personality of the person doing it. Yeah. I remember one time a guy brought in a, a real expensive drum set. Um, and I could tell that it's never been out of the house because it was spotless. It had never been in a bar or anything like that. And he didn't know how to tune it. So I, I'm, I love drum tuning. I really do. Um, so I tuned his snare and I'm sitting here with one of his drumsticks and I'm hitting it every way I can to try to make it sound bad. I'm trying. I'm trying everything I possibly can. I'm like, this is just a fabulous sounding snare. The guy sits down and it was awful. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. I don't know how he made this drum sound so bad. Yeah. You know, so this, that part of the source, it's the human being making the noise first. Yeah. Then the instrument and how the instrument is tuned. Then you've got the room. Then you've got mic placement. What kind of mic you're using is more important than how expensive the mic is. Um, and then you've got your mic preamp, you've got your converter, you got this, how are you mixing it, blah, blah, blah. So th- it's every aspect. And th- when I look at a record, that's what's going on in my head. Are there any, so like, now I guess I'm curious to hear the taste of your of your ear, if you okay. will. So like what, is there anything that's been out recently or any style or any artists out there that's like really impressed you lately? It's a couple. Um, when I discovered Billie Eilish, I'm like, oh, this is something new. Mm-hmm. This is something of substance. It's deep. And I predicted her explosion way before it happened. Nice. I'm like, there's, there's something going on here, and you just wait. You just mm-hmm. wait. And, um, and it happened. Now she's the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. And I love it. I love it. I, th- I think she's a true artist, her and Phineas, her, her brother. Mm-hmm. Um, just great. Just great. Yeah. I don't know too much of her dis- discography, but like the, just two records. That's it. <laughs> two albums. Right? That's it. Yeah. 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 She's she's a new. Where, where do we go when we sleep or something like yep. that? Yep. And uh, the That's one a, before that was a wild uh, one. Yeah. Um, so th- that was refreshing because I, there was some real substance there. So when you hear that, is it like the 
does it feel like a, like it's coming from a different dimension or something? Is that like, does that make sense? Is it because it's the freshness of like the energy behind it or cause like that song, the, where do we go when mm-hmm. we sleep? I think is a song. Um, to me, that's like, it's almost a different genre or like a different, like y- your mind goes through a different, like, you know, image or well she she reminds me of a modern modern day female teenage Kurt Cobain mm. um, I was there for the Nirvana um, mm-hmm. arc mm-hmm. and they blew me away I remember where I was sitting the first time I heard Nirvana and I was the right age I was 20 years old or 21 and all of us we thought music was this you know because we just grew out of the 80s right. and and all that and kind of conditioned for that and then all of a sudden this nevermind record happens and you listen to it and it's so simple and so to the point and it's so just three guys playing rock and roll and that self-loathing thing everyone was kind of feeling that back then mm-hmm. you know when he said um uh, i'm so ugly but that's okay so are you yeah you know it's kind of like everyone sort of related to that because yeah. you were starting to see through the bullshit right. of the 80s which was this Facade. It was really a facade of hair this big, <laughs> mine, mine included. Yeah. Um, so when I heard Billie Eilish, I'm kind of like, okay, she relates to teenage girls in the same sort of way of like, okay, I know what suffering is all about. Even though I have no reason to suffer, I'm from a middle class family. I should be just happy go lucky and just go to school and do my thing and and yeah. whatever. But she wasn't. You could tell there was something else going on with with her and her lyrics and her delivery and stuff. Uh-huh. And I'm like this. Um, cutters around the globe will just latch onto this chick. Yeah. Yeah. What's cutters mean? It's uh, self mutilation. Oh shit, shit, shit. Yeah, it's kind of the, the teenage affliction. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Not to not to take it lightly at all. Yeah. No. It's, I know. it's a serious thing. But yeah. Um, but that's kind of what I heard. I'm like, she she fits a purpose in our society right now, and that's why she's that big. Yeah. It's funny. I feel like there's so many. Like every time, it's like, oh, this this era it was seeing through the facade and then 10 years later that era was seeing through the facade and then yeah. 10 years later you know right um because like back to what we were talking about earlier it's like we definitely saw vulnerabilities in you know systems and ideas and um what's your take on um or, or what's your take on the weight of drug influences on music eras so like the like do you see that's why music sucks now no one's like, on drugs yeah <laughs> like, like honestly <laughs> if, you, if you think of you know, this is going to sound really weird but some of the greatest artists whether it's painters or classical composers or whatever all had self-destructive traits mm-hmm. and that's what we like about them because we all have self-destructive traits. Right. And they're willing to lean into them. And they're willing to speak for us. Right. You know, that sort of thing. So like, um, drugs are bad kids, but, but it's weird. Everyone's clean now. You know, I, I hear about these recording sessions back in the seventies where everyone's drinking and, and on, on Coke and, and doing all this stuff. And I'm like, how did they, even, how did they accomplish anything? Right. Well, they had a budget there. They could just throw away a whole week because they sucked, you know? Right. Um, but the egos and the whole thing now, um, you know, people can do whatever they want before their sessions. You know, if, if a guy smokes weed, 
uh, who, who am I to pull him out of his fishbowl and not let him breathe? Right. You know, it's like, okay, the, not in the studio, obviously. Um, drinking, you know, if a group wants to bring some beer, fine. When people bring hard alcohol, I know I'm in a race against time because mm-hmm. there's going to be a point where things are going to be fine, 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 and then no more production and things are going to get difficult. Yeah. So I try to get as much done as I possibly can. I'm watching the singer and I'm like, ah, we got probably 10 minutes and he's going to be, okay, let's, yeah. 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 It is interesting because you see things on, on multiple levels. Like you said, you have huge productions coming in periodically and you're mm-hmm. also working on someone who just wants to make a song for maybe a family, like a family yeah. reunion or yeah. something. I do all that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny when, when people, um, approach me with something a little bit off the beaten path. They're like, are you comfortable working? You know, have you ever done this style of music? Or are you comfortable working on it? I'm like, I dare anyone to bring me something I haven't worked on yet. It's been 20 years. Yeah, you know? definitely. Um, where do you say like music nowadays isn't drug influence i would say it is in uh i guess i would say hip-hop is but maybe maybe nothing else maybe all pop maybe all folk maybe a lot of that maybe a little bit of weed inspiration but nothing else yeah maybe um but it isn't like it was yeah you know it did like it just went hand in hand before and now i think careers aren't as easy as they used to be you know, it, yeah. it used to be kind of like, okay, you got a record deal. They're going to give you support. You kind of go out there, do your thing. You're not as responsible for your own career. You have, you've got this team around you. Yeah. And this machine more than anything. Now, to keep your career moving forward, and for many reasons, um, you got to work your ass off. And there's no yeah. time for messing around. Yeah. That's really interesting. And this is something that's hard to even, like, wrap your... It's, it's hard to put your finger on, but that seems to be like a characteristic of i don't know if it's capitalism itself mm-hmm. but something about the system we're in is very much like um technology creates like a a boom of economic opportunity and mm-hmm. uh, access and then very shortly that s curve comes back around and it's like okay that's gone now you got to right. come up with something new cuz like and that curve is shorter and shorter and yeah. shorter all the time yeah, and I think that might even be, you know, part of, um, you know, maybe not the um, black community struggle, but part of our collective struggle in this, like that distribu- redistribution, or not the redistribution, but the, the wealth gap that's been happening. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the middle and below are finally starting to like really feel that like just that the s curve is running out it's like we need new technology like this the 60s and then you know almost like the craziness that the internet created is like um we're either about to hit another boom or like we're you know well here there's one thing that that i've been kind of following is um joe rogan became the top podcaster in the world the first the first big one right Mm -hmm. and now he was um did the spotify spotify for a hundred million dollars or something like that so i'm like okay um things are going to change because there's big money being thrown around which means more than just youtube 
there's going to be some other companies, some other formats, mm-hmm. some other forms kind of moving up because that's happening. They're taking podcasting seriously now. Mm-hmm. I mean, big sponsors are. Yeah. So um, I think the system is going to be changing in the next year or two pretty drastically. Yeah. Because of the influence of big business. Right. And that's something to look forward to, obviously. Maybe. It could be a trap. Uh, true. I mean, it, it, big business could start dictating your content. Where true, right now, yeah. YouTube, you're free to say whatever you want. Right. And ultimately, it probably is a, a big trap. I guess that's what I'm saying is, like, it's, it's hard to even talk about. Like, because us talking about S curves and like growth slowing down and that making it harder for musicians to, to make it, um, or to even make a living where they can like, like you said, mess around and like try different lifestyles and our, you know, um, a lot of people that goes right over their head because it's like, it's hard to even talk about, but maybe, I don't know. That's what interests me about this time is like, we can actually question or hopefully, hopefully some divine inspiration or, you know, whatever your belief is starts hitting some leaders and, uh, or the next generation of leaders or artists. Mm -hmm. And we start coming up with like, we start seeing the edges of like new potentials, like new systems. Well, here's, here's the problem with the music business right now is that um, the industry made a really, really bad mistake. Um, 2004, 2000, Spotify, and, or no, Napster. Right, LimeWire um, and stuff. With, with share, file sharing. Um, notice you can't just watch any movie you want because they're protected. But the music industry never protected digital recordings, which they could have. Um, so what happened is these streaming services came along and said, Okay, um, the Snapster thing. Uh, see what's going on there. And the whole industry should have been pouncing on that at the time. Mm-hmm. I, that should have not happened at all. Music's not free to make, so it shouldn't be free to have. Period. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember people saying, a little bit off the beaten path, people used to say, well, it only costs 79 cents to produce a compact disc. I'm like, you know, studio time is $3,000 a day. Right. You know, that producer, that, that, all these people have to get, who, who duplicates the thing? Who does the artwork? Who, you know, no, right. actually that disc that you're holding in your hand costs $200,000 to make. Right. For you to hold that in your hand and you're getting it for eight bucks. I think it's a pretty good deal. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, I guess. And, and that's a, a perfect example of like, I guess I was talking a little more broad about like how do we change the whole distribution system. Well, I'm, I'm still getting there. Oh, okay. So, so what happened is the, the record labels got scared, and the streaming services approached them and said, "Hey, we'll make a deal with you. We'll pay you eight million dollars a year for your entire catalog." And they're like, "At least we got eight million dollars coming in this year, mm-hmm. right?" But the problem was all the contracts that they made with the artists didn't include the modern technology. Streaming. Streaming's not a part of the contract. The, the artist gets cut out completely. Or they get fractions of a fraction of a fraction of a penny. Mm-hmm. So right now, you used to tour to promote record sales. Well, you can't make money selling records anymore because everyone gets it for free. Mm-hmm. You, it, that entire part of that industry, the part where you made the money is gone. Mm-hmm. Now what? You know, so there's no 
there no longer is there a financial incentive to record music you know beyond you really want to do it or it's you're advertising for the live show and hopefully that's where you can make some money but that's a tough one mm-hmm. so that's where the industry flip-flopped on this whole thing yeah yeah i, I hope that was kind of to your yeah to your definitely um it didn't it's more of how it happened and less of like okay what, what do we, we do now? now right yeah um, I don't know what we do now because they threw the whole thing in the toilet. <laughs> we had something here and they threw it away. Yeah, you know? but it is the same issue. Um, I bet this guy, his name is Zarin something. Um, he was like one of the first guys in virtual reality okay. back in like the late 80s or something. Mm-hmm. Um, Silicon Valley guy. And he has this idea about content in general. What up, music video, blah, blah, blah. That like... There was this like fusion of these two ideas uh, in that in Silicon Valley, like Silicon Valley wanted to save the world and make a shit ton of money right. together. And like this fusion created this like um, obfuscation, which was just like a muddying of um, it was manipulation. Basically, it was like, OK, we're going to build this thing that's free and now you're the product. And like, that's what ended up. Yeah. That's just the model for everything now. It's literally everything it's like okay how could how do we just get a bunch of users we get network effects where it's this you know the value of it is the square amount of the number of users and then will the people become the product this guy's idea zarin is that like um he still believes in silicon valley and like the i the idealism of it um but we have to stop manipulating the, the reality of the situation that basically these unicorns as they're called now these startups Mm-hmm. Google, Facebook, blah, 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 you name it. They make their billions off of the stuff that you're generating, your content, your words. Google Translate mm-hmm. only exists because uh, a code is sent out to see how you use the word in a conversation. Yeah. So, like, basically what he's saying is that we should rethink the system from, like, a microtransaction level where it's like you should get a cut some kind of royalty fee of that not the whole thing mm-hmm. it's it's not bad that google can make billions of dollars it's not bad that facebook can make billions of dollars but it is bad that um ultimately they're doing it on my data by following my lifestyle right yeah. and then and then and then manipulating you to want or feel like you need a product that you don't want or need and you don't necessarily know you're being manipulated, mm-hmm. but you kind of said yes. Yeah. Oh, you gave away all your rights when you clicked on the I agree. Right. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's some form of system that music needs to take on that, that we need to view the internet as, as like there is uh, an exchange of value that it is important to recognize to keep a middle class like their hat like basically his thing is like there's an like the idea that everything can can be free and we'll all be fine it just doesn't work like there has to be an economic exchange for economics to Mm -hmm. continue so that's a fascinating idea that's like the best i've ever articulated it yeah yeah i think it's important um to share and i think it's cool how it potentially applies to helping out these musicians who maybe need a, a baseline well, you know it's it's funny that how how art has always been undervalued especially now yeah um 
where because it's called playing music and the people doing it are having a good time and the people witnessing it are having a good time they're enjoying themselves yeah so they feel like well you should do that for free and pay you to have a blast <laughs> there's a lot involved you yeah know? same thing with me yeah. it's like you know people think that you know i i'm in the studio to have fun no i'm doing serious work you know yeah and um and there's stress involved and there's a lot of oh, organization totally. and consistency and, and a lot momentum. of experimenting through the years and doing this and you know all of that stuff mm -hmm. and people don't see that in art for some reason they just think you know but if you sell nails they have oh 18 dollars for nails that's pretty expensive but we need nails so we're gonna buy it yeah it is interesting to think like if you go you know you can go extreme one way or the other go back to when there was no manufacturing like archaic people or right. something how did they exchange value everything's so arbitrary ultimately mm -hmm. like yeah but yeah i think people should value art 100 percent. yeah because if it goes away the world's gonna suck yeah i don't think it could possibly go away but you yeah. know it'd have to be pretty uh totalitarian yeah for art to go away but, but it's it's hard done places we've got a we're, we're one generation into this new world now one one of the things is all pop music is computer generated you don't really hear musicians much anymore you don't hear a live drummer you know mm -hmm. um so when they hear I, I keep hearing this term bandy from young people it sounds bandy really yeah bandy because how it, young um anywhere from teenagers to their to mid-20s kind of thing of if you can imagine if all you've ever listened to is absolute precise computer generated music your entire life you've only listened to pop music and that's it that the little tick of a a rolling drum machine that's on every hip-hop record yeah 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 <laughs> okay that's all you know and then you hear led zeppelin they're gonna sound like a jug band to you relative sure. to what your conditioning is sure you know so that's all the extra artifacts and all the sloppiness it's yeah. got to sound terrible to them sure you know guns and roses like you know that's got to be something just sounds like such old guy music you sure. know um so we've got that we've got one generation of that and we've got one generation who gets free music and it's going to be hard to get them to pay for something they've been getting for free it's it's almost like having an air tax We've decided that um, you've been getting your air for free, and we've had enough of that. So now you're going to have to pay $50 a month to breathe that air. Yeah. Or we're going to throw you in jail. For sure. And right. And it's not to say that it can't be done, but it's hard for sure. And just we need to find a different source. We need to find a different thing. And I don't know exactly what that is. We tried, you know, everyone was excited about crowdfunding. Yeah. And I kind of looked at it, and I saw a couple groups doing it, and they were successful, but like i don't think this is a business model this isn't something you can sustain yeah and um you know some people still do it we have a radio a local radio station 91.1 the avenue which is a crowdfunded non-profit radio station and they seem to keep surviving mm -hmm. because people care enough um but they're not corporate radio also you know mm -hmm. so they feel a part of this which is great but i'm i hope it lasts you know but i, I that model to me kind of scares me sure yeah, it doesn't. I I, I agree. It, it feels. 
hard. And then on the other hand, okay, where, where does anyone make money? Advertising dollars, right? You, you, you're doing a, a television show. You're just a placeholder for ads when it, financially. Mm-hmm. Um, a radio station, a typical commercial radio station, they play songs that we like, but how do they make their money? Not playing those songs, selling ads. Mm-hmm. Um, YouTube, the, the whole scheme. Everything is about advertising right now to try mm-hmm. to sell you a product. The problem is, say, a YouTuber. You have to get yourself to a certain status, millions and millions of hits, before you're going to see anything. Mm-hmm. So there's this big gap between nothing, 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 nothing. Oh, the last five years finally paid off. Now I'm making money doing it. Yeah. 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 I almost think we, and I mean, not to say we're, you know, everyone is, is vulnerable and we've seen that with COVID and everything, but, um, we almost live in a bubble in Northeast Wisconsin that there is, things can live in the middle still, Mm -hmm. not that it will last forever and that we should rest on our laurels by any means, but. Well, I think, you know, the Appleton music scene is the, one of the best in the country. As far as an organic, we are what we are sort of thing, you know? Um, say Austin was always this city of like, oh, band city, rock city. No, people move there because of it. It's all right. transplants. Right. You know, it's not them mm-hmm. anymore. And then you put in South by Southwest, they got corporatized and all that stuff. That's not a scene anymore. That's a controlled thing. Mm-hmm. So our scene, I think, is as good as it kind of gets or was until the, you know a while ago. Um, where a person could make a living playing music. Yeah. You know? That's, yeah, that's the kicker is the ability to make a living doing things in the middle where right. I just think a lot of places you don't have that. I don't know. Right. I think it's a combination of community support, almost an obsession with like, oh, someone's trying something, let's help them. Mm-hmm. And uh, with um, with the corporate stuff does exist enough where it feeds this middle class that is consistent with, you know, manufacturing. Um, and then the reasonable cost of living, like the not, you know, maybe it's not the lowest cost of living, but maybe it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, an overpriced city, but yeah, I agree completely. Um, I think between mile music, yeah, local musicians coming from Appleton Green Bay and they get to, you know, we get to act like this region gets to act as a almost as like one city or something like that. Well, it's funny that, you know, the mind you, I moved. It's called the Fox Cities now. I guess you're supposed to call it. I moved to the Fox Valley. That was the, the I want to live in the Fox Valley. That that was my phrase for it, mm-hmm. you know, and to me, it's still the Fox Valley. Mm-hmm. Um Way before Mile of Music, there was something going on here. There's something that dragged me here. Mm-hmm. Why did I had opportunities to move to Los Angeles? I have a half sister that lives out there. I could have easily gone there. I have a half brother in Chicago that I could have went down with him. He was begging me to go down there. Something was calling my name here, and um, the, even even the difference between Appleton and Green Bay. You know, we we're all friendly. We're, mm-hmm. we're all the musicians are friendly, but we know we're different. Mm-hmm. You know, they have their things. We we're artsy down here. We create great art. They're better businessmen. Our bands last six months and break up. Their <laughs> bands, you know, go on and make lots of money. You know, sort of that sort of thing. So there's we've got Lawrence University's been around for a long time. You know, we've got radio stations that have been willing to play local music for the last ten years mm-hmm. um, t- or longer. Probably, probably 15, 20 years. Um, so 
this whole thing's been bubbling up for a long time because it's just the right mood. This, this place just has that right mood. And then Milo Music comes along and acts as a catalyst, mm -hmm. and bam, you know, now we, now we really have something. Mm -hmm. So Awesome. Well, I think uh, it's an awesome positive message to end on. Yeah. So cool. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate yeah. it so much. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, thanks for letting me vent. <laughs> What's that? Thanks for letting me vent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, hopefully uh, people enjoy this and hopefully this, I really, the art scene in Appleton, 100%, I think, um, and Northeast Wisconsin in general, I think it has a lot of potential. So. Yeah. Sweet. Thanks, man. Awesome. Thanks for having yeah. me. Sweet. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It truly means a lot to me. 